0: It was April 1861, North and South were prepared to do battle, but neither really had any ideas to what it was that awaited them, so they came in droves. Uh, They knew very little of um, army discipline or drill or life in the open or following orders or mastering weapons, digging earthworks, uh, enduring uh, food shortages and agonizing homesickness, combating Diseases that they had never heard of, uh, wounds, injuries they had never been told of, medical treatments towards both that were both painful and, frankly, in hindsight, pathetic. So they came. Neither side had any idea that before war's end, some 650,000 of them would be dead. Soldiers blue and gray both sides, as a nation as a whole, had no idea what they had gotten themselves into. They had no idea that the cost would be so high. This idea of um, not knowing what we're getting ourselves into, this idea of unpreparedness, is a theme that cuts across every arena of life, uh, every endeavor. It is also possible, it's something I alluded to last week, um, It's also possible in the Christian life as well, that we could be unprepared, that we could enter into it without knowing what we're getting ourselves into. And the Lord Jesus would have us to be prepared. He would have us to know, indeed, what it means to follow him. And so he speaks, and he speaks as he does, and we find here in Matthew chapter 10. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me uh, to where we're going to be settling in for a little bit uh, here this morning. Matthew chapter 10. Uh, That's the first of the four Gospels that we have, the first of the books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we are in Matthew, Matthew 10, uh, starting in verse 26, picking up where we left off last week, and reading on to the very end of the chapter at verse 42. So, Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, on through verse 42. Hear now the word of God. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, He will by no means lose His reward. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, thank You for these few minutes that we have to study Your Word, to delve into it. And we ask that You would um, delve it into us. Here from the outset, we confess that there are heights here that we have not wings to reach. There are depths here, a mine of treasures. the end of ourselves, we do not have the the lines to access. Uh, We need you in every respect. For life and breath and everything, for understanding, for heart's understanding, for heart's change, that therein life change would come. Clearly, you had some pointed things to say to your disciples that day. And now, and we ask that you would give us ears with which to hear. Delightedly so. And yet at the same time, expectantly so, submissively so, contritely, humbly, gladly so. And all of that and much more. Give us ears to hear. We pray in your name. Amen. Last week I was, uh, made a reference to uh, ambassadors in the news. Well, I have uh, yet another news story for you. Uh, and that is the recent news story coming from the, the Far East, Japan, excuse me, Japan, recalling their ambassador to South Korea. Now, that's kind of a big deal when you recall an ambassador. Uh, that's a formal public statement of what I'll call displeasure uh, with the other nation. Now, you may be wondering, what on earth is going on there between Japan and South Korea? Well, um, It started with, well, actually it starts decades before, but I'll explain that in a minute. Most immediately, it started with South Korea's placing a comfort woman statue out in front of a particular Japanese consulate. Now, a comfort woman, that statue is meant to represent and be a reminder of sex slaves, Korean women, who were dragged away uh, to be serviced, uh, or in the service of Japanese military men on the front lines during World War II. To say the least, this has been a blight in the history of the relationships between these two nations. Now there's been a lot of work been done in recent years addressing this issue and redressing this issue. And so <clears throat> excuse me, when South Korea took the step or factions within South Korea took the step of, Making this statue and setting it out front of a Japanese consulate, the Japanese government understandably was a little put off by that and felt like that they then had slighted the efforts and, and denigrated all the efforts that had been, you know, progress that it had made thus far. So they recalled their ambassador. Jesus is not recalling his ambassadors. He's sending them out. He's sending them out. And that is a major theme that we see here in Matthew chapter 10. The calling, the commissioning, the sending forth of the 12. Oh, and then, by the way, also the instruction, the teaching that Jesus is giving those 12 as he is sending them forth as ambassadors, as his followers. Um, and, and it hasn't changed. Uh, he is still yet saying to his followers, you are my ambassadors. As I'm sending you forth into this world, you are my ambassadors. That calling has not changed. And fundamentally, really, the instruction has not changed either. The the principles still hold. As followers of Christ, those of us here this morning that would uh, describe ourselves in that way, as followers of Christ, we need to recognize that we have been, we talked about this last week, sent in his name. Sent in his name. As followers of Christ, we have been sent in his name. What Jesus would have us to know and understand is that there are things that we need to know as we go in his name. As followers of Christ, we have been sent in his name. There are things that we need to know as we are going forth in his name. Three things in particular that Jesus would have us to know as we go forth in his name, they come out here in this text. Um, And they are all tied together, and there are these three. First, we need to know who to fear. Secondly, secondly, we need to know who to choose. And thirdly, we need to know uh, who it is that has sent us. So these three who's, who to fear, uh, who to choose, and who has sent us. The, the nature, the difficulty, the the strain, uh, all that's involved in this mission demands that we have those three things in front of us, and those things are what Jesus uh, lays out here in this passage. So firstly, who to fear. Um, when you think back to the things that we have read over the course of this this looking at the latter part of Matthew 9 and on through Matthew 10 and getting to where we are, Jesus has said again and again, you need to be prepared for the inevitability of resistance to the gospel message and opposition to those who go forth with that message. So when you take that to heart, to the degree that you hear and heed what he is saying and take him seriously, you must. there's an inevitability to that resistance. That's what we were looking at last week. That then can spin up some resistance in your own heart, some fear, the temptation towards a hesitation towards going out to the degree that you're really hearing what he's saying, there then proportionally will then be a sense of at least a temptation towards trepidation, fear, hesitation, holding back. And so with that, Jesus then gives uh, three times in uh, verses 26 through 31 a threefold command not to fear. And the reasons why. A threefold command not to fear and the reasons why. The first reason that he gives is in terms of the reason is why we ought not to fear is that what I'll call the emergence of truth. The emergence of truth. It will out, if you will. And we see that in verses 26 and 27. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And what he is saying here is that, look, However much evil man will try and hide, however dark and mysterious the secrets are that have yet to be revealed, all will be made known. And so with that, all should be made known. There is no need to play it safe. There is no need to to hold back. Ours is but to speak, as he says, to proclaim, to tell, to make known. So that's the first thing, reason not to fear. The eventual emergence of truth, all will come out. Uh, The second is what I'll call the non-permanence of death. That sounds kind of weighty. It is. Um, The non-permanence of death, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body, in hell. Now, there are some obvious facts laid out here, both explicitly and implicitly, when you think about what just the freightiness of what Jesus has just said here in this one verse. One way to think about it is this. Just ask yourself the question, ultimately, who is man? These finite creatures. How, what, how far can they go and what they can ultimately do to us? Who is man and who is God? Or if I can just put it in another way, there's one commentator I read this past week said, um, you know, when you compare the worst, well, put it this way, there really is no comparison. No comparison between the worst man can do to you and the worst God can do to you. So therein, who should you fear? Who, who, who's, who should get the freight, the weight, the, 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 the honor, the respect, the reverence, the due in your life, in your heart, in your thoughts? Man or God. So that's the second thing. First you have the emergence of truth. Secondly, uh, the non-permanence of death. Do not fear. Do not fear. Reason one. Reason two. Do not fear. Number three. And the reason God's watchful care. Verses 29-31. through 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Um, in that time, I mean, the sparrow was regarded sort of metaphorically speaking as a reputation, not literally, but just thought of as the smallest of creatures. Just this little, little bird. The smallest of creatures. And, and the penny, well, it was the, really the, the least valuable of all the Roman coins. And so you see what the, the kind of argument that Jesus is making here. It's the classic from lesser to greater argument. Look, if he is so concerned about the least, of the details of our lives. How much more so can we know that he is concerned with the whole of our lives and going far beyond just the mere details? Again, this, this, these arguments. And so then that comes to this concluding statement that he makes there in verses 32 through 33. You know, with all that he said, starting in verse 26, building, 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 and I realize for some of us, those three arguments, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, might land differently. You know, you might have three different people. And those three arguments, might one of them might land differently on each of those three. And that's fine. He's trying to hit us, help us hear. Do not fear. And that brings us to this, as I said, a summary statement, verses 32 through 33, with all that in mind, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What he's saying here is that Look, with everything that I have just said, you have ample grounds for faithfulness and no reason for fear. And that confidence, to the degree that we're hearing what he is saying there, in those three reasons not to fear and all that that goes on with those, that then impels a confidence that can set in motion a pattern of faithfulness. Not a standard of perfection, that's not what he's talking about, but a pattern of faithfulness faithfulness. Again, the idea in essence being there's no reason. Jesus is leaving us. No reason, good reason, to fear. But every reason to fear and honor God. Um, Some of you may recall a scene from one of the old Charlie Brown TV specials where uh, Lucy is sitting behind a psychiatrist's booth And she's going through a list of fears and phobias and kind of hammering on poor old Charlie Brown with that. And she lists them out, and they are, I had to look this up, uh, hypingophobia, allurophobia, climacophobia, thalassophobia, gephrophobia, pantophobia, and in case you're wondering what those are, the fears of responsibility, cats, staircases, oceans, crossing bridges, or just everything. we fear all kinds of things. Uh, that's just a sampling, of course, of, of the, thing, the kind of things that we might be open to fear. And it's interesting to, to think about this. The Bible, but what I don't know for sure. I haven't done a study on this, but I think it's fair to guess, at least anecdotally, the most common command that you see in the Bible is "Do not fear." Is "Do not fear." And, and there's a long list of things that are, that are given as examples. You, you're tempted to go this way. Don't. Don't fear. Don't fear, for instance, conspiracies and shame and insults and financial loss, loneliness, armies, enemies, hostility, a lack of a leader, suffering, death, yours or another's. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. It's quite a list and quite a command, isn't it? And quite a reason. Because God. Because God. Jesus is telling us there is something about this mission that I am sending you on that will tempt you to fear. The pushback, the hostility, the resistance, the opposition, perhaps even the persecution you may incur will tempt you to forget and to fear. And he is telling us, but ultimately you have no reason to fear those things and every reason to fear Him. That's the first thing. Who to fear. The kind of thing we have to know as we're going in his name. The second is not so much who to fear, but who to choose, who to choose. Um, and the choice comes about because of a division. A division that is made. And you see that in verses thirty-four through thirty-six. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now this is really, if you're a student at all of the Bible, this is, ought to hit you as a little surprising. That Jesus would say, I've come to bring division. Because he's described elsewhere as the Prince of Peace. And even in the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, his followers are described as peacemakers, and the gospel is described as a a message, the gospel of peace, a message of peace and reconciliation, us and God, us and one another, us within ourselves, us ultimately one day with creation itself, of peace and reconciliation. Now this seems really can seem puzzling, but it's right there. It's right there, plain in the text, and it's 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 not that Jesus came for the purpose of causing division, but ultimately His coming brings division. That is inevitable because He demands unconditional allegiance. He will brook no rival whatsoever. And so with that, that therein will bring Division between people, and therein a decision. The division that he brings causes decision for his followers, if I can put it that way. And you see that in verses 37 and 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will Find it. Oh, do you hear what he's saying? It reminds me of Lewis in Mere Christianity, that classic argument that he makes that if you really listen to what Jesus is saying here, he's either the worst liar, just a fiend, or a lunatic, just a nut job, or he's Lord. And there's really no wiggle room between those options. You hear what he's saying, the claims that he is making. Let me just, so the backdrop to this this division and this decision that he's demanding is his supremacy. That he's just assuming about himself. And you can see that it's implied and it's implicit and explicit in some of the things we've already seen and it flows on as you just keep reading. Let me back up and help you see some of what I'm talking about. Verse 32, 33. Jesus says that your eternal destiny hinges on how you respond to Him. That's what He said. In verses 34 and 35, He he speaks of His coming into the world. As though, even though He is one of us, He has come from the outside. Then in verses 37 and 38, just read that, He speaks of Some being worthy of him, some not being worthy of him. And the necessity of bearing one's cross, meaning living a life of self-denial for his sake. And then you get to to verse 39, and we have that paradox of finding life, losing life, and that all, again, hinges on him. The language, the tenor, implicit, explicit, this is unlike anything, any rabbi has ever said. His supremacy is the backdrop for the division that he causes, the decision that he forces. And what he is saying is, is that because of my supremacy overall, I have to take priority overall in your life. Now, yes, you're called to love. And he assumes that in mentioning these familial relationships. Yes, of course, we are to... Love our family members and love our friends. We are called to love strangers. We are called to love our enemies. But he says ultimately all of those relationships have to be in the backdrop. They have to recede into the background and he has to be in the forefront. He has to take priority over everything. Everything and everyone. Now, you think in terms of what he is saying and how that had to have struck his first hearers. A culture, a traditional culture where everything is about family. Everything is about your identity. Your identity is wrapped up in, in your part of a whole. And he is striking right at the vitals of the identity, the self-understanding of that culture. And he's cutting right into it. And blowing it up. And saying, I have to take precedence over all of that. You think in terms of how that that plays itself out in our our own families. It's a quick aside, okay, in terms of application, way to think about this. So, you know, the best thing, if you're married with kids, the best thing you can do for your children is to work with great intentionality on your marriage the best thing you can do for your children is to work on your relationship with your spouse and let that take priority there's a creational order and design things oh but what's the best thing you can do for your marriage to focus in on your relationship with Christ Again, there is a design, there is an order that he has has given that these things might actually flow and function and flourish in the ways that they are intended. Um, it seems that we are then given the... the, the um, there's an imperative here. An imperative here that we would learn to interrogate. Let me go back to the last point. Interrogate our fears. Uh what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of? Why is this recurring thought, this recurring anxiety, this recurring worry of what if, what if this and what if that? And other, What is that telling me about what's going on in my heart and the depths of my being? But not just my fears, but my choices. Why am I pulled in this direction towards this or towards that at this decision point in, in my life? Um, why am I being pulled Towards those things that, that lend towards my uh, comfort and ease or security and control or my affirmation by others. And what does that tell me about me? And so again, I said a moment ago that Jesus is speaking here, and certainly he's speaking in that first century context, in a Jewish context, and they're in cutting right into the the identity and self-understanding of what it meant to be in that culture. So he's saying, no, it's not family first. It's me first. And he cuts right into the, the same temptations towards idolatry in our own day. Which I understand is not a traditional culture, really. We are a Post-traditional, post-Christian, post-modern, post-post-modern, everything. We're in an individualistic-based culture, and he's speaking to that as well. Cutting right into our own self-understanding. He's saying, to the traditional culture, no, family is not first, I am first. To us in our own day, he is saying, no, you are not first. Your own freedom, your own independence, your own desire for fulfillment, and all of that stuff that you're all about, that, no, I am first. I am first. If you're to follow me. To every culture, to every person, he speaks right into what we would otherwise think is our identity and our self, and says, no, it is me. It is me. I take the priority. And Jesus is saying there's something about this mission that I am sending you on. You need to know that. And you need to hear that. Not just who to fear, but who to choose. And Lastly, who to fear, who to choose, who has sent you. There's something about this mission where we're going to get tempted to get knocked off center on all these three things. Who to fear, who to choose, and last, who has sent us. We are, you've heard me say a time or two, perpetual spiritual amnesiacs. And Jesus is speaking to that here. And and here He's he's speaking and He's picking up on a theme that we've seen all through Matthew 10, what I'll call the principle of extension. The idea being that that as, as we go forth, as He sends us forth, He wants us to understand that we are going forth in an extension of his very ministry. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He describes us elsewhere as his co-laborers. We go forth with his message according to his methods, relying on his strength. And therein, this is what we talked about last week, we should expect his response. That is to say, the response that we get to that message with those methods in his strength That response that we get, we should understand, especially when it's not positive, we should understand that ultimately that's not resistance or opposition to us, but to Him. It's that idea of extension, this principle of extension, our going in His name. Well, here there's a slight shift in the emphasis on that. The principle's still there. He's still addressing that, but there's a shift. A slight shift in verses 40 and 42, through 42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is saying here, look, there's a shared reception and a shared reward. Um, in terms of shared reception, again, it's, he's spoken to this all right all, already. Excuse me, it's that the idea of, of the apostles uh, as, as a similar uh, concept with the Hebrew concept of the shaliach, that meaning you go forward in the name of the one who has sent you. So how you are received is ultimately an extension of how the one who has sent you is being received, positively or negatively. If they reject you, the messenger. They are rejecting the one who has sent the messenger and the message. If they receive you, if they embrace you, they are ultimately it's not about you, it's they' are ultimately receiving and embracing the message and the one who has sent you. But Jesus goes further with that, and, and by the way, that's an extraordinary thing because he's saying it's speaking to the level which he identifies with us and, 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 our, and his sending us into this world. He goes further, though, and speaks of not just a shared reception, but of a shared reward. The idea being that, look, when they receive you, when they embrace you, they are to receive the same reward that is your due because they are sharing in the labor, sharing in the cost, sharing in the effort. The main thing with all of this that I want you to see, though, is this tie that is binding. Jesus, he says, is binding himself to us and us to him. And that, again, is something that we need to know as he sends us, that Who has sent us? If I can put it this way, the backing, the backing that we have as we go in his name. Um, Second Samuel chapter ten, verses one through five, taking you back way back in Israel's history. If you want to find that and read it, uh, there are a bunch of firsts and seconds in the old testament narrative early on. Um, you've got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Well, First and Second—excuse me—Second Samuel 10. I want to read to you the first five verses, um, going back to the first king David, if you will. 1, 2 Second Samuel 10, verse one. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. David said, "I will do loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me." So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips. Think about what that would look like. And sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. And thus started the great war between Israel and the Syrian Ammonite army. And the reason was not just because of this brotherhood, comradeship in arms felt between the general, the king, And his men. That's not. Nor is it just about petty revenge on David's part, but rather it is David is recognizing in this an identity that he shares with his men. To reject those messengers was ultimately to reject him. And he knows himself to be the divinely anointed king of Israel. The divinely anointed king of Israel. And that is how his messengers have been received. And he identifies with that. Now fast forward centuries later to great David's greater son, to Jesus himself and the sending forth of his messengers and how he identifies with them, with us. Now think with me. Whatever arena he sends you into, whatever calling, whatever endeavors, is is where you are, your station in life today, whatever it may be. Out there in the marketplace or there is a stay-at-home mom. Either one or some variation there in between. He's the one who has placed you there. And ask yourself this, where am I feeling stretched? Where am I feeling way outside my comfort zone? Where am I perhaps even meeting that resistance and feeling the the edginess of that opposition against the gospel? Do you realize, do do you know who sent you? Do you know that you can appeal to him with that in mind? You sent me here. Help me. That's the backing that you have. That's the steel that you can have. That's the resolve that you can have. Knowing who it is who has sent you into that. Again, he's telling you, I'm us, as I'm sending you forth. There are things you need to know. And part of that is who sent you. And every I said this earlier. To every one of these points, who to fear, who to choose, who has sent us, it tells us this is difficult, this is challenging. There's aspects about heeding and hearing this call. That to the degree that we're hearing and heeding it, we will be tempted. Tempted to want to make some changes, make some adjustments. Um, make some updates, modernize some things, modify some things, dilute the call. We aren't given the liberty to do that. End with this, um, an account from the early days of the Civil War. It's a collection I've got at home, a a great little book. It's synthesizing a whole bunch of different diary entries and letters and such and firsthand accounts and Well, early on, here's how the author sets it up, and then the quotes. Patriotism had its limits. A Midwestern unit was being formed, and the enlisting officer proudly announced to a prospective member that the regimental flag would bear the words, victory or death. I object to the motto, the man said. Why so, the officer asked. How shall it be changed? The potential recruit answered, make it victory or pretty badly wounded, and I'm your huckleberry. Well, you can't fault the man's honesty and his ingenuity, but here's the deal. We don't get to change the motto. We don't get to change the motto. We are soldiers enlisted and following a king for his cause. We are disciples sitting at the feet of the master To learn in every scope from Him. We are the vine. He is the branches. We are finding our life, our very life in Him. We are followers. That means we follow. We are followers of Jesus. And as we go in His name, He is making clear there are some things that we need to know as we go. Things such as, who to fear, who to choose, and who sends us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as then, so now, there are a variation of ways that we respond to such words. Lord, even this morning, in this place where there is confusion, we pray that you'd bring clarity whether there is offense, we pray that You'd bring humility. Where there's fear, we pray that You'd bring confidence. We ask that You'd work within us a keen awareness of who is speaking. For those here in this room, for those of us here in this room who would call ourselves, profess ourselves to be Christians, remind us we're followers And prompt us to ask, what does it mean to follow You? And to be receptive to Your instruction. To go forth on Your mission. The advancement of Your kingdom and Your name. To hear these things that we need to know. And then, oh, would You be merciful to bring them to mind. Even this week. We leak. We forget. Consciously or unconsciously. Oh, would you bring these things to mind when it counts. When they're needed. We pray in your name. Amen.